The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Battle of the Crater in 1864 was one of the iconic moments of the Civil War. The technological innovation of digging under Confederate lines, the drama of the explosion, the what could have been irony of the attack that failed, and especially the participation and subsequent massacre of United States colored troops. All of these make the crater one of the most remembered moments of the Civil War. But the way it has been remembered has not always been the same. We'll talk today with Kevin M. Levin, author of Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War as Murder. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the world headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio in the Brewster Building, the third floor, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as always, not speaking for the university, just for myself. And, likewise, our guest will do the same today, speaking for himself and no other institution, I'm sure. It's a pleasant fall day, late September 2012, in the beginning of the ninth season of Civil War Talk Radio. We've had some... Very entertaining shows thus far uh, this semester, this season, and look forward to more. We'll keep a secret temporarily who's coming up next, but we anticipate some very good shows in the days and weeks ahead uh, as we go forward with Civil War Talk Radio. I had the experience of, uh, while teaching a Civil War class this week, when the students said, uh, oh yeah, my dad listens to your podcast, and I, I thought... That's interesting. Um, I'm not sure what direction that cuts, if that's going to 
cause the student to do a, a better job or to uh, uh, do less, or if the student will be perhaps moved to listen to Civil War talk radio and get an edge over his classmates by finding out what's going on here. In fact, maybe uh, we have an exam coming up on Thursday. If I'd already written the exam, I would give one of the questions right now, and then any student who'd listened in would be, have an advantage. That would drive the numbers up. Uh, what a good idea. I'm sorry I hadn't thought of that before, but uh, the exam is not yet written. Every year I try to change them up partly so people don't just look at old ones and partly so I'm not bored reading the answers because I've read them all before and partly because the class is different every year. Uh, certainly that's one of the things that makes teaching uh, Civil War or any subject worthwhile is that you always learn something from the uh, from the act of teaching it, and that's certainly the case uh, uh, this year as it has been in the past. And it's something that uh, our, our guest, doubtless, will uh, agree with. We'll get to him in just a moment. A quick reminder that to find out what's going on in the world of Civil War talk radio, take a look at www.impedimentsofwar.org, and there you'll find uh, the very excellent website that lists uh, past shows, upcoming shows, links to the uh, archived editions of the show on World Talk Radio. Uh, anything you might ever want to know, you can find there. There's also a Facebook page for Impediments of War with the really wonderful photographic illustrations uh, that Mark Gaffney has brought there uh, of various Civil War figures listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Surprising to find uh, Sherman with a boom box or a union regiment with a large Wurlitzer jukebox, but they were in fact listening as they fought to Civil War talk radio, and these photographs are indisputable proof of that fact. Well, uh, if those photographs show that memory is, is malleable, if, if you can change the, the past by photoshopping a picture, you can also change the past uh, simply by remembering it differently, and that's what will be talking about uh, today. Our, our guest, as I said earlier, is Kevin M. Levin. He's the author of Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War is Murder. Uh, he was on the show some years ago when this book was a, a mere gleam in his eye, and now that it's out, published by University of Kentucky Press, uh, we're, we're back to talk about it some more. Kevin, are you there? How you doing, Jerry? Good. Good to hear from you. Um, we, when were you last on the show? Was that five years ago now? That must have been, it was, I think it was in 2006. So I think I had just published maybe a, a magazine article on the battle, and that's, I think, what we talked about for the most part. That's right. So, so six years ago, time, time flies on Civil War <laughs> talk radio. It does. Uh, well, this, this, um, at that time, you were teaching at a, uh, in an independent school. And yeah, I was, I was, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, teaching full time, and I had just finished, uh, a master's degree at the University of Richmond, and I went back part time, and, you know, what eventually turned out to be the book, uh, was my master's thesis. And, uh, are you still teaching there? No, no, I've, I, for the past year, I now live in Boston. So moved last July, and I took the year off last year uh, to finish the book and some other projects. And now I'm teaching part-time in a private school and doing some other odd jobs, uh, some freelance writing, some other things just to make ends meet. But, uh, yeah, I'm no longer in Virginia. 
different environment uh, entirely. So are you you're teaching at the secondary level? Is that as, oh yeah, which is what you yeah. were doing before? Yes, yes. So what what do you find your students' uh, interest level or emotional response to the Civil War? How do you find those differing in uh, the Boston area compared to Virginia? Well, that's something I'll probably have to come back and tell you later. Uh, you know, we just started the year, uh, so we haven't really talked much at all about uh, about the Civil War. But I think overall, I, I wasn't sure what to expect, and I thought, you know, moving up here, I knew these people would be much more interested in the Revolution, so I'm trying to adapt as best I can. But I'm pleasantly surprised. There, there are, you know, plenty of events, uh, sort of Civil War-related events to go to, uh, in this area, in New England, and in Boston specifically. So the interest level is is fairly high. But but in terms of what my students know and sort of their perspective, their biases, uh, that's something I just don't know enough about at this point. Well, that that will make itself clear. What school are you teaching at? You can put a plug in while we're here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a school in Waltham called Gann Academy. And uh, I just started there uh, and so far really enjoying it. It's nice to be back yeah. in the classroom. It's... Uh, it's surprising how much teaching sort of becomes, you know, in your blood. It sort of frames your your week, your year, in fact. And so it was nice having the year off, but uh, it's much nicer being back with the kids. I really missed it. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're able to do that. And uh, uh, Waltham, that is the, the former watch capital of the world, I believe. <laughs> it uh, might be. <laughs> back in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, that was what they that's, made there. And uh, that, that sounds right. Uh, so... The uh, well, it's a a endless source of conversation here in North Carolina for transplanted Yankees like myself to uh, compare notes with other people about the differences, the different parts of the country. The people yeah. here, I've discovered, don't want to hear about it. Um, if if we don't like it here, we can take our Yankee selves back north. Um, is frequently the view, but I will just share this with you that they recently built a roundabout uh, or rotary, depending what part of the country you're from, or circle, traffic circle, uh, wherever in the world you may be. Mm-hmm. And it uh, near near my house, it's the first decent sized one in Greenville, North Carolina, and the drivers here are baffled by it. Um, and in the Boston area, you have lots of rotaries and. Oh, yeah. Lots of life, you know, near-death experiences every time you approach one. Yeah. Uh, so, are, are, have you become accustomed to that aspect it, of? Uh, it, it took some time. Um, I, you know, I won't, uh, I won't lie to you. It was not easy. It's um, coming from no uh, circles or rotaries to everywhere. Uh, it wasn't easy, and Boston drivers are pretty aggressive. So, I'm I'm happy that he's still in the land of the living. I guess. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad. I hope you'll stay with us. <laughs> I was driving last night to uh, uh, to a pickup soccer game and and saw people dawdling around the the circle. I just darted in ahead of a very startled southern driver who thought yield meant stop. Yield, you know, means nothing of the kind, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, and it was such a delightful experience. I actually got off at the wrong uh, the, the wrong exit. Uh, because I was just so much enjoying getting to drive New England style again for for a few moments uh, that I had to go back, do a U-turn, and go back through the the circle a second time. So anyway, but we're here to talk not about that kind of circle, but about the the crater. Uh Um, This, uh, the, the book you've written here is 
not about the battle of the crater as it is about the memory of the battle, but for our listeners uh, who aren't aren't up on their their well, I'd, actually, I'll, I'll be explicit for my mom who listens every week. Um, let's give some background on the battle of the crater because the average sure. listener to the to Civil War talk radio knows what happened there. Uh, yeah. But if if someone doesn't, well, give give us the five minute background. Yeah, and I won't even take five minutes. But it, you know, the battle uh, took place on July thirtieth, early morning on July thirtieth of eighteen sixty four, and it comes out of uh, that month long campaign between Lee and Grant in Virginia, uh, or you know, uh, Central Virginia, the Overland Campaign. Both armies incur uh, very heavy casualties. The a campaign eventually shipped uh, below the James, uh, below Richmond entirely. Uh, in early June of 1864, there is a, an attempt, uh, a half-hearted attempt, I guess you could say, by the Union Army to break the defenses around Petersburg, about 20 miles south of Richmond. And the hope is by taking Petersburg and cutting off many of the railroads that supply Lee's army, uh, that that would force Lee to evacuate uh, Richmond and the surrounding area. But those initial attacks... June 14th, June 15th, roughly, uh, don't, don't, uh, are not entirely successful. Uh, and really the two armies, as they both shift, uh, you know, to take up position around Petersburg, begin to dig these complex chain of trenches and earthworks. And within a few weeks, uh, you begin to sort of, it begins to resemble something along the lines of a siege. And as these two armies are, you know, continually digging and stretching each other's lines, uh, there's one point uh, just east of Petersburg where the two armies are a few hundred yards apart, and a regiment from Pennsylvania, the 48th Pennsylvania, which is in Ambrose Burnside's Ninth uh, Corps, uh, come up with the idea of tunneling under this this Confederate salient that sort of juts out from the rest of the Confederate line, and they, they basically make uh, the argument that uh, they can tunnel under it, pack some explosives under there, blow it up, and uh, and, and perhaps you know. Uh, advance, uh, you know, some Union units in there and perhaps split the Army of Northern Virginia and maybe take Petersburg. And this plan is uh, run up the chain of command, Meade approves it, Grant eventually uh, approves it, and for the next few weeks, uh, these men begin to dig. And eventually um, what measure is about a 511-foot uh, tunnel underneath that Confederate position uh, occupied mainly by South, Carol- uh, South Carolinians, and uh, the Union High Command uh, comes up with a plan of attack uh, that will include uh, Burnside's four divisions. At first, uh, there the plan calls for the lead uh, division, uh, which is a all-black division. Uh, the plan calls for them to take the lead in the attack, and the last minute, uh, Meade decides to uh, change things up and forces Burnside to come up with uh, a different plan, and or at least to switch the the, uh, the divisions around, and he does that. Uh, those black men do take part in the early morning attack, so the explosion explosion does take place, um, and the initial advance of Union soldiers is fairly successful. Many of these men do get caught up in the large crater that results from the explosion, uh, but enough men do get beyond. Um, they sort of hug the sort of the outskirts of the crater itself and managed to begin to move uh, beyond uh, into these Confederate earthworks. 
Uh, and about 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, Lee's reinforcements under the command of William Mahone uh, begin to take up position. And around 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, their counter-assault takes place and pretty much pushes any all the initial, the, the furthest advance, Union advance, back into the area immediately around the crater. Uh, so within a few hours, uh, this attack bogs down, and by early afternoon, uh, you know, you've got a decisive Confederate victory. And, of course, what my book sort of focuses on is um, the presence of those black men, what that meant to the Confederate soldiers during the battle, and then, of course, afterwards, you know, how their presence was remembered or, in many cases, forgotten about. So I hope that gives you a sort of a, a sense of, you know, what took place in, in the broadest terms. That that that's excellent. That that uh, sums it up. It let, gets us on an even footing here. Uh, there's a couple of remarkable things about this. Uh, just before we talk about the the memory of the battle, the, sure. the idea of digging this giant tunnel. It's very. Uh, uh, very medieval. That's how they used to, you know, bring castles down during the siege. Was dig under them, uh, and you know, the Confederates started a countermine. They, they must have sure. heard the digging going on. Yeah, they uh, they do. In fact, uh, there's a wonderful passage in Porter Alexander's Fighting for the Confederacy, which of course he publishes decades after the um, the war. And you know, he talks about you know he's in position around what was called Elliott Salient, and he's watching the the Federals. And, you know, he sees firing on the right, you know, he sees sharpshooters, artillery firing to the right, and, and also the left. In front of him, he doesn't really hear much of anything. And it's at that point that he, at least this is what he writes later on, he, he basically says, this is, they're coming, and they're coming underground. So, you know, Alexander had a sense that something was going on, and as they're getting closer, uh, as the tunneling progresses, uh, some of the men can begin to hear them. They do dig a couple countermines, which you can still see if you go to the battlefield, but they were never dug uh, deep enough so that they never hit their target. Um, and so it wasn't a complete surprise. But, of course, no one really knows uh, or has a sense of, of what the, the result will be of this tunnel. Um, I don't think anyone really has a frame of reference uh, for you know, the devastation that, in fact, occurred uh, on July 30th. But they well, know it's coming. <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm just going to say they, they, they do have a, a sense that they're coming. Something's happening. Well, something definitely did happen. We'll take a short break right now and come back in just a minute. We're talking today with Kevin M. Levin, author of Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War as Murder. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <music> to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market everyone has a belief system that they stand by it's comfortable and safe if you believe that a hot stove will burn you you won't touch it sometimes beliefs like this are practical but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much these are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system, and by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambrix, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kevin Levin, who's written a book called Remembering Remembering the Battle of the Crater, looking at the uh, dramatic battle in 1864 when Union soldiers tunneled under the Confederate lines at Petersburg, set off a huge mine, were supposed to dash through the gap, but got distracted, were poorly commanded, ended up being driven out. And most significantly, uh, especially in terms of memory, uh, many of the soldiers, Union soldiers involved were African American, and many of them were killed during the battle or after the battle when they attempted to surrender. The uh, fighting took on the the character of, of a massacre as opposed to a battle by the time it was over with Confederate soldiers shooting down the uh, black uh, uh, victims. Well, Kevin, this is a, a critical part of the memory, certainly, but to put that in perspective, you note that the soldiers going forward, uh, many of them were remembered to have been shouting, remember Fort Pillow as their battle cry. The black soldiers were saying this, uh, Fort Pillow being the place where white soldiers under Nathan Bedford Forrest had earlier right. massacred black prisoners right. so this is what is what is the status of black soldiers uh, vis-a-vis the confederates by 1864 what uh, uh, are massacres the order of the day something along those lines i think is, is surely the case i think the presence of of black men in, in the union army uh, by 1864 for confederates for white southerners in the Confederacy generally is really sort of the result of, you know, everything they imagined would happen. Um, some of the most sort of horrific, uh, um, uh, images they might have entertained at the beginning of the war, especially, uh, you know, since Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. So it's sort of the living, uh, it's, it's the living result of uh, everything that, you know, the, the, that they expected would happen is, is now staring them in the face. And these men, of course, rushing, uh, you know, with, with guns, uh, you know, in this battle, uh, they are, it, it's, it's a heightened sense of, um, of, of rage, I guess you could say. But my goal in, in that first chapter was really to try to understand the nature of that rage. What, what exactly did their presence mean to these Confederate soldiers? And I think clearly, uh, they saw them as something other than soldiers. They saw them as uh, slaves in rebellion. Uh, many of them write home uh, in the days and weeks following the battle. Uh, you know, they wrote home, write home very you know, openly and honestly to their loved ones, uh, and they say these things. They they talk openly about massacring them. Even men who were you know nowhere near the battlefield write as if they were at the battlefield, and they think they 
they, they want their loved ones at home to understand what they're dealing with on the home front. Uh, if there's any concern about you know, lagging uh, morale, uh, this should be the <laughs> this should be the the, uh, the anecdote here. This is the um, this is why we have to you know maintain our focus, and this is why you know we need to to ensure our independence because you know everyone understands what the result of of their presence uh, means for their society, a society based on on slaveholding and white supremacy, and so they talk openly about the massacre. Uh, and um, and and as well as in the newspapers, um, newspapers sort of echo uh, many of the things that you find um, you know, in the letters and diaries. So they're, you know, for many of these men, I think it's a cathartic experience. But they they don't hide uh, the fact that there was a massacre. Uh, it, it's in fact the opposite. They want people on the home front to to know this. And I think it's important to also keep in mind uh, that this is really the first time that the Army of Northern Virginia is defending a significant civilian population. Uh, of course, you know, many residents of Petersburg, white residents, have left, uh, but they're still defending uh, a civilian population, and I think that also adds to their sense of urgency uh, that morning. And so it's, um, and I think the other part of it is uh, that the massacre fits into a broader, uh, I guess, context, uh, you know, between whites and blacks or, um, you know, slaveholders and, and slaves going back to, you know, even the Caribbean and how whites deal with slave rebellions and going right through Nat Turner um, and then the fears, you know, surrounding John Brown's uh, raid at Harper's Ferry. So there, for them, this fits into a broader, a broader history of slave rebellions. And that's, and that's how they, they describe it um, in the wake of the battle. Uh, the, the, uh, it's it's almost as if that this underlying tension that has been building up in the white south for uh certainly the 30 years since Nat Turner and going back further to the re- rebellion against the French in Santo Domingo the the nightmare the hidden white nightmare is one day the the black population will rise up and uh take vengeance for for enslavement that's right. It, it, it's now seeing the Union soldiers, as you say, approaching them with guns. They may see that, uh, but it's really a release of the the Confederate fear more than anything else. It's almost hysterical release in in killing these people whom they have professed to treat paternalistically. Uh, right. uh, they they suddenly turn on them with an incredible ferocity. Yeah, many of the men in uh, in Mahone's Virginia Brigade, and and they are. Uh, they're the ones who are leading the Confederate counterattack. Um, but the brigades, uh, the regiments in that brigade are pretty much raised in the Petersburg, Norfolk, uh, sort of south side area of Virginia. Uh, Mahone himself was, uh, born and raised in Southampton County, Virginia, which of course is the home of Turner's Rebellion. So all of these men, you know, growing up in the Tidewater, heavily populated slave area, close proximity to, um, to Turner's Rebellion. Uh, they have that in the back of their mind, um, and just and I think also, you know, growing up, understanding what what it takes to maintain uh, a slaveholding society and seeing the threat in front of them, uh, they know exactly what needs to be done. And I think part of the the violence that's meted out to these black men, you know, is is meant as uh, is meant as a sign to the slave community as much as it is a message. Uh, to whites on the home front, that uh, now this is what you stand to to get. This, these will be the consequences if you think about, um, you know, engaging in 
an insurrection. Well, the the message uh, is not lost at the time, as you pointed out. There are a lot of letters home that talk about it. But then the war ends, and the soldiers are, are muted, certainly, for a time, the southern soldiers having been defeated. Uh, their wives and mothers and sisters carry the, the lost cause flag uh, more more visibly for a while. But but at least for, for the first 10, 15 years after the war, we don't hear as much about it. Uh, does, right. What about the, but the crater itself is still there. That's right. There's a small part uh, what, of what happens to the crater well. after the war? Well, that's an interesting story. Uh, you know, there it doesn't become part of the National Park Service until the mid 1930s, and Petersburg after the war is expanding. You know, of course, many farmers want to get back to the the job of farming, and, and just you know, many of the earthworks are are being lost, are, are lost during the post war uh, period. But the crater itself was owned by uh, William Griffith. And his family maintained that site as a tourist attraction uh, during the post-war uh, period. And, they, you know, they built a, a saloon. There was a museum on the battlefield close to the crater itself. There a number of artifacts uh, on hand. And it was widely visited. And they, they would charge a quarter uh, for people to visit. And if they were a veteran, usually a Confederate veteran, uh, for the most part, they were allowed to get there and to, to walk around for free. But because it's in private hands, uh, it probably guarantees that it's it's going to be preserved, especially because it, it is so attractive. It's such a, a popular tourist uh, attraction after the war. And that sort of, you, know, you can follow that right through the, the, the early part of the 20th century, and then it's eventually sold to, the, to what's called the Crater Battlefield Association. And they turn it into an 18-hole golf course. And it's only in existence for a couple of years. Uh, and and it, when you go through their files at the Petersburg National Battlefield, you get a sense of why that was, uh, why it was only around for a few years. And they couldn't pay their bills, so, you know, you have lawn services that are asking for payment, and, you know, there's nothing for, forthcoming. So they don't last long. But, you know, the um, you're basically, when you're walking there today, you're basically walking on what was an 18-hole golf course. And even the company kept the crater, what was left of it, kept it intact. You could actually walk through the golf course if you wanted to risk it, and you could walk around. And I always joke it's, it was probably the, the world's uh, largest uh, sand trap at that time. But uh, eventually the Park Service bought it, and uh, you know, they tried as much as they could to uh, return it to its 1860s turn the landscape to the 1860s, what it looked like. Uh, but you still are looking at it as a golf course, I think, even today. Uh, you really don't get a sense of uh, the lay of the land, the trees that are now there, the, the tree lines, but especially the, the various layers of, of earthworks uh, on both the Union and Confederate side. Uh, but once it was in National Park Service hands, uh, you know, they were able to protect it. And that's pretty much what you're looking at uh, to this day. They would take down the saloon and... Uh, museum building, these shacks, which really what they were. Um, and um, a number of monuments were, 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 you know, were put up. But um, it hasn't changed much since, since the 1930s. What, what does the crater look like? Originally, you're right, it was several hundred feet wide. Yeah, that's uh, right. 60 there, feet across. One, it, it's hard to know. There's, what's left of it, I think, is just one tail end of... of 
the initial, you know, uh, the initial size of the crater. There, it's there's one sort of uh, very large depression, but it's it's filled in to a certain extent. And after the battle, Confederates rebuilt uh, parts of that line, so part of the crater was probably um, built over, you know, in the uh, during that last stage of the Petersburg campaign itself. So you're not seeing the whole thing. Um, and I'm not even, I couldn't even tell you exactly what part you're looking at, but it's, um, it's clearly not, um, you know, on the scale of, of what was there in 1864. Now, the crater, me, the memory of the crater initially is as a Confederate victory. You can understand yes. Union authors not wanting to say too much about it. Uh, I think Grant's memoir says it was the, saddest thing he was involved in in the whole war or something to that effect yeah uh the uh but to the confederates it was a victory mahone's brigade of virginians comes storming up and seals off the gap and drives the union troops away and uh thus you would expect to find after the war uh when when confederates do begin to write about this and memorialize that they would remember uh William Mahone uh, fondly as as a, a hero, but uh, Virginia politics and uh, inter- interfere with that. The, the the South is not united in the decades after the war, uh, and Mahone plays a role in that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I, initially he is quite popular because he makes his home in Petersburg. He's in charge of a very large president of a very large rail uh, rail line in Petersburg up until 1873, so he's, he's extremely popular. Um, and so he's, he's sort of in charge of veterans' affairs, uh, much of them sort of focused in Petersburg, and when they get together, focused on the crater. Uh, so, of course, Mahone is prominent uh, in those ceremonies. Uh, but he eventually does get involved in Virginia politics, and he eventually comes to lead uh, probably the most successful third party of the 19th century, the Readjuster Party, and their primary focus is on bringing down Virginia's debt. That's the big debate in Virginia post-war. And there are different approaches to this. And some people want to pay it all off. Some people just want to leave it. Some people want to pay part of it off. And the readjusters want to pay off part of it and leave enough for internal improvements and other, you might call, call them social programs. And many of these programs... Uh, will benefit Virginia's black population. And the readjusters are a biracial party. And so an ex-Confederate general, now the, the head of a biracial political party, you might say that Reconstruction comes late to, uh, to Virginia. This is between 1879 and 1883. And you have a dramatic shift in the racial profile of Virginia state government. Uh, Mahone eventually goes to Washington, votes with the Republican Party, uh, but, you know, in terms of mid-level, um, you know, political positions, a uh, large number of African Americans are appointed. And so for the more conservative elements in Virginia, it goes without saying that they're not happy about this. And when it comes to attacking the readjusters in Mahone, they go right after his war record. It's a wonderful example, a 19th century example of political swift voting. Uh, if that means anything to, to your listeners, thinking about what happened to John Kerry uh, when he tried to sort of push himself as the war hero candidate. Um, and even members of Mahone's old brigade, uh, if they were against Mahone politically, many of these men come down hard on Mahone as 
uh, as a as a war hero. They challenged whether he was on the battlefield at the crater. Uh, they challenged whether he gave the order to advance. All kinds of charges against Mahone. One uh, uh, broadside uh, claimed that Mahone let uh, Confederate uh, soldiers starve. I mean, all kinds of things. Comparing him to John Brown, uh, Benedict Arnold, and so you know he paid a hefty price uh, for his um, his political beliefs. And, you know, if you look through Virginia, you know, textbooks that are used early part of the 20th century, right to the mid part of the 20th century, uh, you'll be hard pressed to find anything about William Mahone. Um, and, and which is, you know, which is not surprising. Uh, you read his obituaries and everyone wants to say something nice about him, but they also don't want to necessarily forget about the misery he called, he caused them and the state. Um, in returning Virginia, you know, backwards, you might say, uh, at least racially and politically. So he pays a hefty price uh, for his for his politics. Right. And backwards in the sense of what the conservative elements are trying to do. That he, it, sure. From our perspective, uh, Mahone and the readjusters are a moment of uh, of potential of what might have been yeah. had they right. been able to prevail by. Not spending all of Virginia's revenue on debt reduction, but using some for social programs. They created public schools. They yeah. integrated the government. They did all kinds of things that we would consider useful today. Yeah. But uh, but it was not to be, and Jim Crow was instituted instead. And, and but that's an uh, important point that you make. That it's a moment of possibility. We tend, I think, all too easily to think in terms of uh, in terms of inevitability after reconstruction after 1877 that it's just inevitable uh, a downhill right to Jim Crow in the early part of the 20th century and here you have you know at the hands of a, an ex confederate general um, who is uh, responsible for for you know um, for creating the space this racial space if you will but it also i think serves as a reminder that the lost cause was anything but unified that uh, whether or not you were fondly remembered in the lost cause had everything to do with your, your politics. And, of course, Longstreet is the best example of this, as we all know. But to me, Mahone is, is much more interesting because of what he actually does um, on the state level in terms of state politics in Virginia, in the former capital of the Confederacy. Well, we will take another break now. When we come back, I want to talk about the crater in the 20th century, in particular two uh, very interesting reenactments of the battle that took place uh, in uh, in the 20th century, and one that didn't take place, the third one. Uh, we'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. Our guest today, Kevin Levin, author of Remembering the Battle of the Crater. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. 
show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Kevin Levin, author of Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War as Murder. We've talked about the Battle of the Crater itself and the fate of the Crater Battlefield, which is today part of the National Park Service, and a little bit about uh, William Mahone, commander of the Confederate Brigade that led the counterattack, and how he himself was attacked by lost cause advocates when uh, he uh, led a, a coalition of black and white Virginians, the Readjuster Party in the uh, late 19th century, trying to create a more progressive uh, government in that state, that led to him being drummed out of the, the ex-Confederacy, much as James Longstreet had been for joining the Republican Party. The uh, the most prominent author to talk about memory of the Civil War uh, in, in recent years is, of course, David Blight. Uh, Yale University, has, whose book Race and Reunion has uh, been the cornerstone in some ways of the, the memory movement to look at the war and how it's been used for political purposes over the last hundred years. Uh, Blight argues, uh, as listeners will know, uh, if you've read his book or heard uh, his interview, we talked to him a few years ago, uh, that black and that rather northern and southern Americans were able to reunite by 1900 over a shared vision of the war as a, uh, a grand and glorious martial contest. And by forgetting about any of the political reasons that that uh, that lay beneath, including especially slavery, the there was a reenactment of the Battle of the Crater in 1903. Uh, Kevin, does that fit into Blight's thesis of uh, reconciliation among warriors? Yeah, not quite. Um, you know, I, I think people who read my book will see that a good chunk of the narrative does sort of follow along the Blight thesis. Um, but when you get to an event like, you know, the 1903 reenactment, um, it, it perhaps points to the limits of, of Blight's thesis, as, as helpful as it is. And, you know, Virginians, um, you know, fairly soon after the war, come to sort of monopolize memory of the memory of the crater specifically. They won't even allow other, you know, Confederate veterans from other states in on the action. Now, this is a Virginia victory. It's a Virginia celebration. Uh, whenever they're on the battlefield itself. And that's truly the case 
1903. I mean, one of the ways in which it does uh, connect to, to Blight's thesis is the pushing away of, of slavery. Uh, but it's important to point out, uh, although there, there, there are moments where veterans from the Union Army come down to the crater, come down to Petersburg to interact with Confederate veterans, and even William Mahone, the 1903 reenactment is a Virginia celebration, or really a Petersburg celebration. And uh, really no one from the outside is, is allowed in, you might say. But uh, what's striking is even though many of these men on an individual basis uh, still remember those feelings of what it was like to fight black soldiers, many of them are, are still writing about it uh, at this point in time. And, you know, when you read their accounts, uh, they resemble what they're writing in, in the days and weeks following the battle. You still get that sense of that emotional, that immediacy of, of it all that, that came through in those early accounts. But uh, at this reenactment, there really is no mention of African Americans uh, at all from the proceedings, uh, except for one man, uh, and that is at the, in front of the parade of Confederate veterans uh, that takes place. They're marching to the battlefield, the crater battlefield. Uh, there is one black man who's leading the parade, and, and it's supposedly one of Stonewall Jackson's uh, body servants or camp servants. I've never really been able to confirm that. Uh, but it is a black man. All the newspapers report that. And you know, it's really a, a symbol of, um, of, of Jim Crow this, uh, this, and the lost cause, uh, that our slaves were always obedient to us. There was always that clear hierarchy and they're still obedient to us. Uh, it's a way of distancing, of course, the issues of, of race in the Civil War, the issue of slavery uh, and the Civil War, but, uh, but it's a very powerful statement uh, in 1903. But I looked for it. There really is no uh, mention of, of black residents of Petersburg coming out for this reenactment. It really is a chance for Confederate veterans, uh, including, of course, a very young Douglas Southall Freeman and his father, uh, to, to listen to stories from the veterans uh, and, you know, ensure that these stories will be passed down uh, to that next generation. So it's a crucial moment as these Confederate veterans are, are dying off. What about memory of the crater in the black community? If, if the yeah. blacks veterans are not invited to reenactments like this and are not portrayed there, uh, do they maintain their own memory? They do, and, and for me, this was one of the more interesting uh, parts of, of the research. Uh, in Petersburg especially, there were a number of um, black militia units uh, in the Petersburg area and in Richmond and a few other places, and they maintained uh, a very strong, very vibrant memory of, of you know, service in the Civil War, and, and, you know, and in terms of, you know, that it might lead to citizenship, um, the importance of sacrifice, all of that. Those stories are, are, are maintained within these communities. The problem, of course, is they really don't have the political um, support to, you know, to, to you know, transfer that enthusiasm, those narratives, uh, into monuments, uh, into other kinds of public, um, you know, that are more visual public uh, for the general public. These stories are, are pretty much uh, maintained within the black community. And then even beyond that, um, you, know, you find some school teachers who are uh, who are still teaching the events. Um, even in the early part of the 20th century, once in a while you find a black uh, school group going to the crater, um, but you don't find much beyond that. And, and that was sort of a disappointment. But but it, it's clearly there, and you can trace it 
in, in, in some shape or form. You can trace that black narrative right through the 1960s. But at the 1903 and the 1937 reenactments, um, it, these are white-only events. But w- the 1937 event, there would not have been many veterans left. No, there were only a very small number that were still around. It was a much larger event. It was uh, it was meant to, uh, I guess, celebrate the the um, the shift to ownership by the National Park Service. Uh, Douglas Sobel Freeman did the narrative for the uh, for the audience. Thousands of of you know of, of people, Virginians, showed up for this event. Uh, the, um, we had militia who were playing the role of Union soldiers. Uh, they detonated something <laughs> that made it look like a crater, an explosion going off. Uh, so it was, uh, on the eve of World War II, it was a very powerful, but a very powerful moment. Um, but it, it also, I think the crucial part of that reenactment is now that you have the National Park Service uh, sort of taking ownership of the landscape itself, they're also coming to take ownership of the of the narrative that has emerged by that point, and that's a narrative that is is, is that hasn't changed much, um, you know, over the past few decades. It's really a story centered on William Mahone uh, and the Virginians, and, and and of course, you know, going along with that, it really has very little, if anything at all, uh, to say about uh, you know the the black men in the fourth division. So. If if we have reenactments in 1903 and 1937, uh, surely on the hundredth anniversary in 1964 there must have been a uh, the grandest reenactment of all. That's right. Uh, uh, one would hope, but that did not take place. Uh, 19- why not? Well, you know, it's um, <laughs> it's a long story, but I, I think the the short version of it is that I think at the beginning of the Civil War centennial, I think planners had. You know, every reason to anticipate a centennial that would, you know, sort of come to reflect, you know, the lost cause, the narrative of reconciliation. But the problem, of course, is the beginning of the centennial is smack dab in the middle of the civil rights movement. And, you know, that becomes a conflict because, you know, the, the narrative coming out of the civil rights movement is the sort of unfinished work of, of the civil war. And, you begin to see planners in Petersburg, uh, because Petersburg hosts a number of of, um, of important uh, moments in the civil rights movement, local events uh, involving the Freedom Riders, and there's evidence that they had planned a hundredth anniversary reenactment. But uh, it, it looks like interest by '64 has petered out. I think they're worried about. I, I couldn't find any direct evidence for this, but it seems to me uh, they're worried that uh, that this event would be clouded by. Um, you know the story of of, of black soldiers. That would it would in fact be an opportunity for people to protest uh, sort of the inequality in Petersburg and other parts of uh, of the United States. So nothing does take place. There's a small ceremony on the battlefield, um, and I think they had learned their lesson. There was uh, the public library in Petersburg uh, was at one point was Mahone's home after the Civil War, and this was a, a scene of. Um, a, a number of clashes between uh, between whites and blacks. Uh, it starts with a a black um, a visitor wanting to check out uh, one of Douglas Southall Freeman's books, and this was an attempt to, of course, desegregate the library. So you have Mahone's home uh, as a scene of conflict, and one can only imagine uh, what would what would happen, you know, at the crater specifically. So, and and, and let's keep in mind that by 1964. You know, enthusiasm for the centennial has really petered out across the country. 
uh, very few people have patience. Um, I think, you know, after 1963, especially as emancipation, you know, becomes the prominent theme of the, uh, you know, of the, the centennial as a whole, which is, of course, in sharp contrast to where we are now, 50 years later. But um, I think that's as, as good a, an explanation of why there was no reenactment as, as we're going to find. But um, it would have been interesting to see what they come up with. Well, it, it, it's hard to imagine how they could have done anything that would have been uh, satisfactory if you had a historically, uh, if, if you had a traditional reenactment along the lines of 37 or 03, a yeah. white triumphalist version where the, the Confederates shoot down uh, Negroes, as they would have been called at that time, in vast yeah. numbers, that would right. not have been very satisfactory. That's but if right. you did a... Uh, uh, if you did an accurate version, which would be the same thing, I suppose, uh, that wouldn't work. If you, if, you, if you did have the black participation, it would not make anyone all that much happier because the, the massacre would follow. Uh, you really couldn't win. Well, right. where are we today with uh, the, the crater? How is it interpreted now? You know, it's uh, if you go there now, I, I think um, I think you're hard pressed to be, you know, you know anything but but impressed with the interpretation uh, at the crater. And, and this is all this this has happened really since the, the early 1980s. In the late 70s, a group from Howard University uh, went down there to uh, to sort of uh, survey the interpretation, and uh, they were looking specifically for how the racial aspect of the battle has been had been interpreted. And they wrote up a, a very detailed report of things they wanted to see improve. And, uh, of course, all of the changes coming out of the civil rights movement you know, now make it possible to, to really reinforce these points uh, and, and, and finally push for uh, real change. And so I think now you find a very, a very different racial profile um, in terms of the staff, uh, in terms of the kinds of books you'll find, resources for sale, uh, a much wider selection, uh, much more reflective of the scholarship that is now coming out uh, on the Civil War and, and race specifically, uh, and even the tours uh, specifically that you're going to, you can go to the crater now and, and learn about the men of the 4th Division. Uh, they talk about in great detail uh, the, uh, the massacre itself. There's no hiding it now. Uh, and I think even last time I heard, I think even the visitor center is, uh, there are plans for a new visitor center, which of course would mean new exhibits, um, it's an old visitor center, and uh, so it's definitely in need of um, some change, um, you know, to bring it up to speed. But you, you have, I think, the most importantly, you have the staff behind it uh, that wants to make sure of, um, that, that visitors understand, you know, what happened uh, specifically at the crater and why. Well, you, in addition to writing this book, you also have a very... Uh uh, stimulating blog about Civil War memory. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about that a little bit last time. Is that yeah. still uh, active? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's very active. Uh, it's updated regularly, and uh, it, it's really um, it's expanded uh, over the years. I used to see it just as a blog, um, so when you logged on to it, you went right to the blog page. But now I, I sort of have it structured in a way that uh, I, I guess you could say it highlights, um, you know, what I'm doing even beyond the blog and teaching altogether. So, you know, doing shows like this and uh, speaking engagements and other things. So it's it's more a platform, my online platform now. But the blog page is still there, 
And I think that's why, of course, most people, you know, uh, visit. And um, it's won a number of awards. And it's, um, you know, it, any success that I can claim, including this book, is really the result of the blog. Uh, I've been uh, really lucky in terms of the, the kinds of people who, who read it and who support it. And um, it's uh, it continues to amaze me in terms of uh, what I get to do as a result. So I'm, I'm really happy with it. What what's the uh, URL just for? It, it, I doubt there's too many listeners who have not visited yet. Yeah, where it, would we find it? Yeah, if you if this, if this isn't clear over the airwaves, you can just Google Civil War Memory; it'll come up right away. But it's cwmemory.com, and that's then you can just yeah. And so I, that's, I, uh, I mean, I find it interesting because uh, there's you know probably several million Civil War related websites. Yeah, and they often attract a certain. Uh, uh, they find a level. Uh, you can find plenty of, of websites where people just just pontificate and yeah. uh, offer uh, you know old prejudices and and argue about which unit you know, got the farthest at Gettysburg sort of thing. But yours is one where people have serious discussions of uh, of interesting things, or not not boring discussions, but. Uh, where, where they take, where, where there's a, a scholarly level to it, but it's, it's very entertaining and, and vigorously debated sometimes. Uh, do you yeah. monitor it to keep it that way, or do you just, just the, the, does it attract the kind of people who are interesting to read? How, how does that work? Yeah, so it, it's, it's evolved. And, you know, I have to say at first, I didn't do any moderating of comments. And that was intentional because, uh, you know, it's a blog about memory and, and many of the comments, you know, as offensive as, as some can be, reflect a certain aspect of, of memory. And, and I think as a record of the sesquicentennial or of, of memory, Civil War memory generally at the beginning of the 20th century, I wanted to include as much of that as possible. But on the other hand, uh, oftentimes it hampers serious discussion. And so I, I do what I can. I do moderate it. And, you know, I try my best. Um, I try to appeal to people's rational sense as, as best I can and not always successfully. Um, and, you know, we just let the chips fall where they may. But um, I think overall it does reflect a wide variety of perspectives. And I think that's the most important thing it, it does right now, especially in the festival centennial, because I think to a great extent, you know, it, it's, um, and I'm writing something about this right now, but... Um, with the the rise of social media, the individual now has the ability, whether it's through a blog or a YouTube video or anything, uh, to sort of publicize his or her understanding of the, of the war, of their perspective. And I think it really does complicate our Civil War narrative, our memory of the Civil War. So Kevin, it's I think that's certainly true, uh, but unfortunately, yeah. we're out of time. Out of time. <laughs> Alas, Civil War Talk <laughs> Radio. It happens too that. soon every week. Uh, this always happens. Uh, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show and urge listeners to check out cwmemory.com as well as read Remembering the Battle of the Crater. And, Kevin, thanks, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And l- listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network.